You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommying While Muslim Podcast. This is Uzma Jafri. And this is Zeba Hussain. How was your week, my dearest? I feel like you know, we just finished our breakfast bylines on the Fireside app, and you always make me depressed after we have that show. So, like, thank you for that. But at least give me some good news and tell me how your week's been. So I want to talk about um, the immigrant experience this week because uh, I discovered Kim's Convenience. Because and because of I you, I'm binge watching that. I know I can't stop. I'm on season three. So um, and that's after a week (laughs) of watching it like until two in the morning. I know. Don't Netflix all night, guys. This is why I have insomnia. Netflix is now at fault. But so my six year old is a Marvels fan and he was watching like three renditions or three shows of Shang-Chi every day Mm -hmm. because that's his like new favorite movie and new favorite superhero, which is awesome. And I did not know that uh, Simu Liu who plays Shang-Chi, is actually in Kim's Convenience. So I started watching it, and it's hilarious. And I love it because I can connect so much. It reminds me, do you remember my dad had a video store growing up? He did. Yep, I do remember he that. He did, right? So it's like I remember working for him as a child in the store and not getting paid because that's what you know immigrant mm-hmm. kids do. We work for our parents, but we get no money. You know, the all the expectations of living with your parents and honoring your parents and the, the stupid things that your parents say sometimes, not the accent. I mean, the accent is a whole nother thing, which is hilarious, but the the thing, the cultural nuances that you have to navigate as a child of immigrants. And so for that reason, I it's also clean enough. There is language, but I mean, my kids hear the F-bomb all day long anyway. So the language doesn't bother me. I watch it with my kids because it is clean enough. There hasn't been anything yet that I've seen that has really bothered me. Um, but it may have been that I watched some of those episodes at two or three in the morning that were bothersome and my kids weren't around anyway. But it's something that I watched because I'm like, look, this is what your grandparents were like with me. You got the good set of parents out of them. I didn't have that set. So I think that that was that's my week and will continue to be my week. Your as week I catch was up on the rest of the, the her, seasons. Her week, OK, so let's sum that up. Her week is binge watching Kim's Convenience because she is going back to the horrors of her childhood and making her kids relive out my trauma so that she can say to them, see how much better I am. Say thank you to me. They say, say thank, thank you. you to me. So, no, I actually agree. Like, because of you, it is definitely a nice show to have in the background. Yeah. Um, so you don't have to really pay attention. And it's super funny and cute. Um, so, yeah, I definitely have been watching that. So thank you for that recommendation. However, I do love my sleep, as everybody knows. So I do mm-hmm. not binge watch. I maybe watch one or two episodes. So I'm only in mid-season one after starting when it was my first set. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. You're very welcome. Is that how you've been spending your week? No, I'm spending my week. I'm in a new space. I am. We're up leveling Emerge Consulting, which is going to be my new um, business, which is launching 2022. Um, so I'm kind of setting it up. This is inshallah, inshallah, obviously best laid plans. Um, but I'm really excited about that because we've built an amazing team of women specifically because that's always my my goal to do that. And so I've just been kind of up at three, going to bed at 11, and just trying to 
I'm burning the candle on both ends, but then I crash at night and do it all again. So that's been my week, but I love it because I, you feel, you know, when you feel invigorated, it doesn't really feel like work. So I uh, definitely appreciate it. And, you know, only God knows, but my intentions are good. And hopefully we're, we'll be there to help support the women um, in this DMV area uh, and including our guests today, which I'll introduce in a little bit. But Uzma, before we do that, I need to know, and I'm a little bit nervous about this because I have a feeling what you're going to be talking about is our soapbox for today. Yep. Our soapbox for today matters to us because we are moms of kids. My um, son, as I've mentioned on a couple of past recordings, will be entering public school uh, next year from a home environment. He's very, he's looking forward to it. So I'm really scared. These are the kinds of stories that scare the crap out of me um, for when he goes into mainstream education inside of a building away from the safety of my Boom. Um, so y'all remember the story that came out of New Jersey, Richfield High School, where a teacher uh, told a kid who raised his hand to ask a question or, you know, um, for some kind of leeway on something. And the teacher answered this 16-year-old, 17-year-old, 17-year-old, uh, Muhammad Zubi, a senior, answered the 17-year-old with, we do not negotiate with terrorists. I mean, are you kidding me? Are you really, really kidding me? So I have good news because of the backlash and because the school district, what did they say specifically, has absolutely no tolerance for any sort of discrimination against any student or staff member, they fired said teacher. Mm -hmm. So I am really, really happy to hear that because it's hard to fire a teacher. Their unions are very strong um, and you really have to to work hard to do that. So I would love for Ridgefield Public Schools to be thanked, particularly uh, Superintendent Leticia Pantoliano. Please send her a note of thanks. You will find uh, a link to contact her. Just a quick email. Thank you for supporting the rights of all students, particularly Mohamed Zubi. Um, it's a matter of uh, respect, right? Like, how could you disrespect another human being like that? And just because he's 17 doesn't make him any less of a human being. I know some people will argue that about teenagers, but he deserves the utmost respect. And so does Superintendent Pantoliano. So please send a quick email of appreciation. Um, the more, I think, positive feedback we give mm -hmm. to um, school districts and to any entity that is upholding the rights and upholding the respect to and for our Muslim kids and our Muslim community, um, they're going to continue going on that positive front. You know, like we're quick to complain, but we're never quick to give positive compliments. So I encourage all of our listeners to use that link to say um, thank you very much for preventing such racism, discrimination, and insensitive language from entering into what should be our safest spaces. And that's our soapbox for today. No, I, I definitely appreciate it. I have to say we, we live in an area where they're very, they try to be as inclusive as possible and they really ask the kids to, you know, talk about their their um, their background and their religion. So to hear something like this is very dis, disheartening. So I don't want you, Uzma, to think that all public schools are like this because, you know, we happen to have a really good one. And guess mm -hmm. what? We've, we have great, and my son is like the leader in that particular high school and he's helping kids, one, learn about 
about crypto and Islam. So how those two things go together, I have no idea. But he's <laughs> managing to do that. And they're very, very respectful of um, Islam. So it's not all public school. So hopefully, inshallah, your son will have that experience. And really what we inshallah. have to do is continue to advocate for our kids. And that's really what we should be teaching them. So good job um, to that particular school district. And we'll be sending an email later today. But as we know, you know, October 31st, whether you celebrate it or not, it's Halloween, right? And then on November 1st, it kind of skips over Thanksgiving, goes straight to Christmas, right? While you're hearing about holidays everywhere, music on the radio, festivals at schools, figuring out how to talk to your kids about it. My son who loves Thanksgiving is like, how come we keep skipping over Thanksgiving? And it's just one of those things where we're keeping giving gifts. And it, I spend so much money as a Muslim person on Christmas for not having celebrate Christmas because I'm, <laughs> I'm giving the teeth. But I'm like, how is this even possible? But you know what we're doing right now today, which I'm really, really excited about is we're gifting ourselves with information on adoption and foster care in the Muslim community. Yes, you have heard that right, because we believe in that here at Momming Wall Muslim. Imagine the sadness we have felt when we learned what is such an integral part of our our muslim identity our muslim community when we when we hear that people are saying it's the last resort to parenthood that they don't want to do that they want to do everything else but guess what we're taking that off the table and we're saying no more we have with us today dr alia Ishad, who is talking about the false beliefs of our community and probably a lot of other things that we think we know um, especially with adoption and foster care. This is an incredibly moving episodes and I am glad I wore my waterproof mascara because I have to with these and we are so thankful to welcome Dr. Ashad. Assalamualaikum Dr. Ashad. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome Assalam. Thank you for having me. So we like to kick off usually by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their momming journey, whatever they're comfortable sharing and their momming philosophy. Absolutely. Um, so I Married my husband in 2005, and like any young, healthy adult couple, we thought it would be easy enough to have children. And so shortly after I finished residency, uh, we started trying to conceive. And, um, you know, after eight years uh, of infertility woes, um, landed on adoption. And the infertility saga is a whole nother journey I could go into. But mm -hmm. um, adoption was always something that was on my radar before we even started um, the infertility journey. Um, and then when we were unable to conceive naturally, um, it just became an even more real possibility for us. Um, our reality was, is that being both working uh, adults, you know, and infertility and the procedures, the medications that felt like a full-time job when we finally landed on adopting, that was another full-time job is like figuring out how, when, where to adopt. And, um, this is now, you know, when we started looking for information almost a decade ago and the World Wide web wasn't as wide as it is now and social media hadn't, you know, 
erupted as it has now. And so there were fewer resources, but they're still there. And part of my goal in talking to your listeners today is just to help identify some of those resources and help to dispel some of the myths, because there is definitely a growing Muslim adoptee community in the United States and worldwide. Um, And so I think it's helpful to know what's out there. And, um, you know, I think first and foremost, talking about what does adoption look like in Islam, because the first Thing you hear from community members, from uh, your fellow masjid goers is like, thaba, thaba, that's prohibited in, in Islam. Um, and so we could talk about that in a little bit. But um, yeah, alhamdulillah, we were blessed to bring home a young baby boy four and, at four and a half months of age. Um, gosh, time flies. It's probably uh, spring of, he was born in 2015 and we brought him home in the spring of 2016 after essentially a 14 month journey mm-hmm. um you know from beginning to end from starting the paperwork to flying home with him um so alhamdulillah he's now six and uh, it's been a wild ride <laughs> as any mom can tell you biological or adopted it's no two days are ever the same uh we are tired but we are happy alhamdulillah alhamdulillah so. That is that is such a blessing. And I know you you wanted to um, kind of leave and perhaps we're going to have you come on to talk a little bit about the, the fertility challenges that you faced. Mm-hmm. But you know, what what can you tell us about what you're comfortable with? Because like you said, when yeah. you get married, and you're young, you're like, Oh, it's this. And you know, a lot of people think it happens a lot easier than it actually mm-hmm. biologically does. You know, it really truly is a miracle every time it happens. So <laughs> I am very much um, interested if you don't mind sharing a little yeah. bit about how that was for you. Um, and what kinds of things can we dispel in our communities about fertility? Like you can't pray yeah. fertility away, right? You can't do certain things. So please um, let us know a little bit about it in case there's somebody listening that is experiencing this. Absolutely. So, you know, um, as a young woman, fresh out of residency, I, you know, went to my first OBGYN appointment just to get checked out and say like, hey, are there any barriers? Is it okay to start trying? And her words were, quote, you're young and healthy, you should have no problem getting pregnant. And, um, you know, a year later, when we still weren't pregnant, um, then we knew, okay, let's meet with fertility experts. And after battery tests, honestly, we really couldn't find anything. And to this day, we still don't know why. And um, after no less than eight different procedures for miscarriages, um, you know, it was basically time to say enough. It wrecked havoc on my body. It's not easy on a relationship. Um, and not to mention the expense. Um, and we always knew there were alternative routes to building a family. I think that's something that a lot of people struggling with infertility, um, everybody has their different journeys. Um, ours was, we knew inshallah that we would complete our family one way or another. We both had a very strong desire to become parents. And so that always offered the hope of adoption. Um, and it wasn't that adoption was like a consolation prize. We wanted to adopt regardless. I think the problem why we didn't pursue it earlier in the journey is to be honest, um, our fertility clinic actually specifically requested that um, people undergoing procedures there not pursue both at the same time, their social worker. Uh, it's not forbidden, but it was discouraged because it's an additional stress, both physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and you really, like when you're pursuing the fertility treatments, 
your mind tries to stay focused on that. Uh, adoption, to be honest, like just doing the paperwork alone and it, it, doing the research, it felt like another full-time job when we did start it. So um, I know people who have done things differently and done both simultaneously. Um, our journey was a little different in that when we finally closed the door on trying to conceive, then we started pursuing um, adoption much more aggressively. And for us, that meant basically, um, you know, first looking at what's a, what are the possibilities for a Muslim couple living in the United States. And so if you're a young couple or a middle-aged couple that's looking to adopt, like, where do you even begin? And that's where we found ourselves over a decade ago now. Um, and it was pretty daunting, to be honest. Um, you know, we you know of your American co-workers that adopt open adoptions, you know, young white couples in the South that can easily adopt. That was not the situation for Muslims. Um, and we talked to domestic agencies that basically told us in this decade, you know, open adoptions for a Muslim couple, it's very unlikely. And uh, we actually had close friends that found that out the hard way after waiting on a waiting list for over three years, only to be told by their agency, sorry, you've got better chances trying internationally. So that's where we found ourselves. Um, after that, then we started looking abroad and trying to figure out how as Muslims and where can we adopt from what's legally allowed. And that kind of led us on the journey to figure out Morocco versus Pakistan. Um, and I could talk a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, I just want to emphasize like how tragic that is how many thousands of kids we have domestically mm -hmm. just waiting for a family to adopt them and because especially if you're physically like very visibly muslim mm -hmm. you can't save that child yeah. because of people's you know long-held beliefs now their islamophobic beliefs that they've mm -hmm. basically been spoon fed for the last 20 years yeah and yeah. that just, that breaks my heart. I did not realize that was the reason why you pursued international adoption. And that makes me sad and angry. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think um, one of the things that your viewers and listeners should know is that when you pursue adoption, uh, one of the integral pieces of the process is a home study. And in your home study, they're investigating everything. They're looking at your income, your health, your friend network, everything. And you actually have to specify, do I want to adopt internationally or domestically? Um, and so that's when we decided international, because if we were going to put all our proverbial eggs in the basket, um, we decided, you know, let's go with what we know has worked for other Muslim couples. Um, I will say, though, with the advent of Facebook and other social media websites, um, there are Facebook groups such as Muslim foster parents and other groups where you will see occasional notifications, hey, these three children in North Carolina are available for foster care, or there's a young teenage mom in Michigan who is looking for a Muslim couple to adopt her child. So I'm seeing more of that. Um, and Alhamdulillah, by the time people reach out and call, the child's already been placed with a Muslim family. So that it does give me optimism that 
you know, Muslim children who are abandoned in the United States or whose parents are unable to take care of them uh, can find Muslim families um, through, thankfully, social media and hopefully some more socially aware and aggressive social workers that look for Muslim family placement. It's not always the case. Um, as my, you may remember from like growing up in Texas, the horror stories of like Muslim kids taken away from mm-hmm. um, Muslim families and like placed with Christian families and raised right. Christian essentially. And so hearing those horror stories like really scares me. Yeah. Um, going back to uh, mm-hmm. some of the beliefs of the community you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, the belief that Adoption is not allowed in Islam, mm-hmm. and people actually label it haram, which is yep. um, forbidden. Um, so if you could address that. And then uh, the question that people ask about, you know, well, you don't know where the child is coming from. And in Islam, we need to know yep. where the child is coming from so that we know their heritage and their background and everything is really important since we have transparent, open adoptions. Um, how do we how do we do that? Because, I mean, you're a pediatrician, so family medical history, if you don't know a child, just how important is that in the process? And then how do we address some of these problematic beliefs in the community? Absolutely. So uh, first things first, regarding adoption in Islam, and there's some great resources for your listeners. Omar Suleiman uh, from the Yakin Institute has a great video series of lectures uh, regarding the permissibility of I, I put in air quotes adoption. Uh, when we adopted Yusuf, or I'm at my son in Morocco, um, the term is kafala. The Islamic term is kafala. And kafala differs from, it's somewhere on the spectrum of adoption and foster care in that you're adopting in an open way. Um, it's a more permanent type of guardianship. It's not foster care can be very short term matter of days. It can be months. It can be years in the United States. Uh, whereas a kafala, you are taking this child under your guardianship with the idea that you're seeing them through adulthood with mm-hmm. a parent like relationship and they do have rights. Um, and it's very open. They, if you know lineage, if you, if they have, uh, say wealth from, parents that have deceased, that is all theirs. They have a right to their name. They have a right to their property. Um, So Islam is actually incredibly progressive in the rights of the orphans. Um, It's just, I think people get very bogged down in the legalese and saying, no, no, adoption is haram. What's haram is not telling the child you're adopted, that you don't come from us biologically, and giving them that right to their you know, information. Um, I cannot tell you how many times since we brought our son home that I'm listening to the Quran or I'm reading the Quran and again and again, it covers the rights of the yatim, you know, mm-hmm. of the orphan. And for some reason that I can't quite peg down, we focus a lot on various sunnah, Uh, various edicts in the Quran. And this one, for some reason, eludes our community constantly. Whether it's we live in a very patriarchal society that emphasizes lineage, um, you know, there are a lot of cultural misgivings. There's cultural misgivings, there's religious misinterpretation. um, But the reality is for a lot of adoptive parents, such as myself and my husband, is that we can't escape the fact that there are thousands of children living in institutions abroad and in Muslim countries. And that is not 
that conflicts with my idea of Islam. My idea of Islam is that these children should be raised and nurtured by loving families. They deserve loving environments. Institutionalization is not the desired outcome. It's not good for the child psychologically, developmentally, physically. Um, and I know there are Muslim parents that are able and willing to take care of them. And so we have to do as much as we can to support these families, to encourage, and to also create an Islamic framework so that people can better understand uh, what does adoption look like in Islam. It's open, it's transparent, these children have rights. Um, there's a lot of nuance, you know, the idea of mahram, the idea of breastfeeding, mm -hmm. the idea of inheritance. Um, but alhamdulillah, in the United States and abroad, there are a lot of a growing body of Islamic scholars that are providing fiqh to basically help us understand and navigate this. A lot of this we're figuring out as we go with the guidance of scholars, but it's not impossible and we can do this. It's not easy work, but it it's necessary work. These children cannot sit in institutions for the rest mm -hmm. of their lives. Um, Osma, regarding your question about family medical history. Um, so with our son, as with many other adoptees, there's very, very little information known and provided at the time of adoption. Um, and this is true for children being adopted, you know, internationally very often that either because of abandonment or because the records aren't released to us, which is the case for Moroccan uh, adoptions until they become uh, basically young adults. Uh, we don't have that information. So we don't have any prenatal records. We have very sparse records from, you know, the four months or so that he was in the orphanage. Um, and so what does that mean as an adoptive parent? You know, obviously it's a little different. I'm a pediatrician. I can look for cues and things to worry about developmentally concerns. Um, but I think what it means for the average parent who is embarking on the adoptive journey is that know what your limits are. You know, when I, for instance, when my husband and I started the process, I can't tell you how many times people would approach me and say, well, you're a physician. You should take the child that has X, Y, and Z medical needs because you could take great care of him. And I knew what I was capable of. I knew that I wanted to be a mommy and I wanted to have a relatively healthy child and that I also was not going to be a stay-at-home mom who would be able to drive back and forth to a ton of doctor's appointments or surgeries and this and that. There are, alhamdulillah, God bless them, parents who have done that and willingly signed up for that. Um, and you should never be guilted, one, into adopting, and two, into adopting a more medically or socially complex child than you feel like you're capable of. Know your tribe, know your resources, um, and things will come up along the way. Medical issues may arise just as they would with a biological child, but I felt pretty firmly. I was like, no, I, you know, I know I want an infant, um, you know, mild medical conditions, but, um, feel confident in expressing who you are, what you, what you are looking for, and then be flexible within that. For instance, there's a lot of couples who have expressed, I want a female or I want a male. And depending on what country you're adopting from, um, for instance, from Morocco, the majority of adoptees are male. From Pakistan, uh, it was female. So it's very different. Um, and then, yeah, and then adopting like older child versus younger child, knowing kind of what you're interested in. These are long, extensive conversations with 
your spouse, your family, you know, um, relatively private conversations, I would say that yeah, <laughs> the whole community, the auntie circle is not they don't invited. Need to be involved. Yeah, they do, yeah, <laughs> no. Exactly. And, and honestly, like, you know, my, my question to you is I was going to say, what are the top three tips that you can kind of give people yeah. for the adoption process? And I would want to add one to that you don't need to be getting information or requests <laughs> from anybody because it is like with your own biological children. I don't need people invested in trying to get to know yeah. when I'm having a baby. It's none of their business. Yep. So that's going to yeah. be my own tip, but I'm going to let you have three more <laughs> about the adoption process for Muslims. Absolutely. So I think a couple of things that I know worked well for us is um, just as with the infertility journey for my, our adoption journey, it was finding people who essentially served as guideposts who had recently done the journey themselves um, and had tips, ideas, their thoughts, their reflections. Um, for me, um, Amina Shams, who's the founder of Bloom, which is a fabulous organization, um, she immensely helped me. She had returned the summer before um, and extensive. I remember we had maybe an hour long conversation one night on the phone and she just like went through her entire journey day by day, week by week. And I took notes and I still have those notes. And it was so helpful when it came time to go to the orphanage and like I knew what to expect because it's such an emotionally driven journey that like you need something, you need facts sometimes to ground you and know what to expect. For instance, you know, she she really appropriately warned me. She was like, these kids, they're very well cared for, but they haven't been, you know, held Loved. and talked mm-hmm. to. Yeah, I mean, the nurses there did a fabulous, fabulous job taking care of them. There were just so many. So the development, you know, early development can be a little stunted. Um, you know, the social smiles, the cues. And I remember her saying, you know, the first time I held the child, like, it was just kind of a blank stare. And had I not known that, when I looked at my son, I would have freaked out and been like, "Where, where's his smile? Where's the sparkle in his eye? And alhamdulillah, within a few weeks of just being there in Morocco with him and interacting with him, we saw him kind of come to life. Um, and so it's things like that. And then there's logistical things like hotel and transportation and medical care. But yeah, having somebody to guide you through the process. Um, the other thing, and this is true for Muslims, non-Muslims, is identifying financial resources, um, which also I was thankful for a lot of advice there. Um, because I'm not going to lie, unfortunately, international adoption especially, but domestic adoption too can be very costly. Um, Thankfully, there's a lot of subsidization between tax Mm -hmm. credits. um, A lot of private employers offer um, subsidies for our credits for adoption, uh, which a lot of people don't realize. Paternity, maternity leave, like identifying all those resources, identifying you know, what are you going to do for childcare when you come back? What, you know, adoption clinics, how are we going to screen medical information when we come back? All of this. Um, and then I think one of the most important things is people don't realize when you're, you get that call or you get that email, how quickly, like in the matter of weeks, you have to drop everything and go. Mm-hmm. And so just life planning. 
Um, and then I think in terms of other things for Muslim couples in particular is also just navigating the resources regarding fiqh. You know, there's a lot of questions that arise, especially in if you're adopting an infant, you know, breastfeeding, the mahram for women who wear hijab. Uh, there's a lot of issues that arise. And so finding trusted uh, Islamic advisors, be it your local imam, professors, whatnot, that can help guide you through the fiqh because there's a lot to navigate. Um, I feel so overwhelmed for <laughs> all the families right now who are in the adoptive process. That's that's crazy. You have um, touched on domestic versus international and then mm-hmm. why you had to go international. Um, do you want to talk about why you chose Morocco and not Pakistan? Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Um, so I, I, I'm of Pakistani descent and for that reason, Pakistan was my first choice. However, when we started looking into it and talking to folks who had recently within the last couple of years prior to us, um, embarking on our journey, gone to Pakistan for the purposes of adoption, we realized it was a pretty lengthy process and it was not guaranteed. Um, and it wasn't uniform, meaning that a person could go and get a baby in six weeks or a person could go and get a baby in six months. And the visa issues were prolonged and not easy to navigate. And it was a multi-city affair where you might fly into Karachi and then have to go to Islamabad and back and forth and, um, places we didn't have family and resources and, uh, to be honest, when my husband and I talked about it, neither one of us could leave our jobs for six months with that kind of uncertainty. And at that same time, we had friends nearby that had adopted from Morocco successfully. And so we talked to them about their journey. And we're like, hey, you know, this looks promising. And there's an amazing woman based out of California named Wafa Banani, who um, she is Moroccan and she basically several years ago, went home for a visit and went to an orphanage just to visit the children and take them treats. And she describes these children climbing up to her and just wanted to be hugged and loved. And she left there. She was like, I'm on a mission. I want to find these children homes. And I remember my first phone call with her. And it just was like this ease, this lifting of a burden on my heart. I was like, I know Allah is matching me with the right people to help facilitate this journey. Inshallah, this is going to happen. And um, 14 months later, (laughs) after reams and reams of paperwork and extensive fingerprinting and physicals, he was in our arms. So it was an incredible journey. But yeah, Allah has placed amazing people along the way for us to help guide us, honestly. I really hope anybody who listens that has any connections overseas, you know, talks to whatever those connections are whoever those connections are to try to ease the burden on your on those nations absolutely Um, because taking care of orphans is you know it's usually federally to state funded depending on what country probably Mm -hmm. um nationally funded in those countries dude make it easier to adopt make it Mm -hmm. easier for people to fulfill the sunnah why are you making the religion hard what allah says don't make the religion hard on people um and i've heard those stories out of pakistan as well where it is just extraordinarily hard um sometimes for some people who don't have those connections and you need it sadly it depends on who you know and that's not fair to all the kids who get left behind so that's just a public service announcement to any listeners who have those connections and can fix you know 
our nations back home. I'm sorry, Zeba, I interrupted you. Oh, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just so thankful because we're, we're providing a resource and you're providing a resource for people that are in that process because it really is such a beautiful thing. And, you know, I, I always say if I was that person, I'd end up probably adopting like 10 kids and maybe one day I the still will. <laughs> I probably will. Like I still the would love to do that. I had so many kids who didn't know what to do. I feel like that now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I just wanted to know, like, obviously we all as new moms need support, whether you're, mm-hmm. you've birthed them or you're adopting them. But do you want to touch a little bit on how your community needs of support um, as an adoptive mom were maybe perhaps different than somebody else that had birthed a mom? Absolutely. I birthed a baby, sorry. Well, hopefully one day we are birthing moms. I always say <laughs> my daughter. They're going to want the epidural. They're going to want the epidural. That's not going to be fun. No, but you know what I mean by that. Absolutely. Yeah, it, I mean, it starts from the basic, you know, you're getting ready to go travel abroad and your friends are like, should we throw a baby shower now? Should we throw a baby shower when you come wow. back? And how do we get the? And I have an amazing sister support group where they came to the house with onesies and supplies wow. and food. Um, and it starts there. But then I think the most important journey is when you are home with that child and he or she is growing and navigating this post-adoption journey, who do you do this with? And alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, I cannot say thank you to Allah enough for this. In the DMV, we have a growing community of Moroccan adoptees, which has been just the biggest blessing for us. And actually, one of my son's best friends uh, was adopted from the same orphanage the following month, lives less than half an hour away. They actually, up until this past year, went to the same school, um, and they call each other brothers. And it's the best experience, alhamdulillah, to navigate this journey with his family. Um, and alhamdulillah, uh, Amna Shams and her organization that she and her sister and some friends have started, bloom.org, uh, they, um, you know, their primary purpose is to help the conditions of the orphanages back in Morocco to improve the conditions for the children that still remain in Morocco. But they also, um, do provide like almost reunion events, if you will. So we just actually recently had a picnic in Maryland and there were several dozen children there and they were actually members of the Moroccan embassy there. So it, you know, it's a nice tie to culture to, for our children to know each, begin to know each other and know that they're not alone in this journey for us as parents to also talk and commiserate with one another. You know, one of the things that those of us that have children that are entering elementary age are talking about is, Hey, when is the right time to travel back to Morocco and introduce him to the orphanage or where he was born or his culture? Um, and so these are ongoing discussions that, you know, you can't have with, your other mom friends that may not understand, you know, the nuances to this. So I think the beautiful part about that is not just creating like your own specific mom community, because like you said, if you know, you know, and I don't know, Zeba doesn't know. So you've got to have your own people. But when you mentioned that, you know, the kids and, you know, kids have those private conversations with Mm -hmm. each other. And if you're lucky or blessed enough, you get to hear a little snippet and they say the most, incredible things to each other and Mm -hmm. ask each other the most incredible questions. So how beautiful that all of these kids who know that they're adopted have a peer 
Yeah. That also has gone through what they've gone through because exactly. my kids aren't going to be able to help them. Zeba's kids aren't going to be able, able to help them. You know, when it comes to questions of where am I from and who am I, identity is so critical, Absolutely. you know, and you're a pediatrician, you know, in development, that's so important. And so I love that about um, your community because it was not something that I ever thought about until you mentioned it to me. Um, so being a member of, you know, the other community, the one who doesn't know, I know I have been guilty of this in the past. I'm sure I have. And people were too nice to tell me. So I want to know for an adoptive Muslim mom, what are some stupid questions that someone like me would ask you or comments that we would make yeah. that would be a no-no? Um, so I think one of the first ones that came to me was actually on my journey home with my child. Uh, the woman sitting next to me on the plane, you know, we just started, struck up a conversation. And during that conversation, she found out, you know, we were bringing home. And she said, oh, really? He looks just like you. Don't tell anybody he's adopted. I was like, whoa, <laughs> we're already going there. Um, so that's number one. Don't encourage adoptive parents to conceal the truth from their children. Um, number two, don't, I would say I've had a lot of people well-meaning say, well, you know, now that you have your child, um, maybe it'll relieve some of the stress and you'll get pregnant on your own. These children are human beings. They're not like tal fertility talismans. They're not like magical people that are going to bring babies into our life, nor should they be. They should be valued in their own right. And uh, you just never know where somebody is on their journey. And for us, that door was definitely closed. And we are very, very happy as a family of three. Um, and then I think finally, the most important thing is... Um, Everybody loves a story, right? My husband's a convert. Everybody loves to hear like the convert story. Similarly, um, people want to hear adoption stories. And while I am willing to share my how the process of how we went about adopting and how we brought him home, I am not willing to share um the particular surrounding his adoption, meaning, you know, whether he was abandoned or what, you know, we know about his lineage, his parents, that is his story and his story alone. And he can choose when he's old enough um, and mature enough, whether or not he wants to share it, how much he wants to know of it. Um, and I'll let him navigate that and I'll be at his side inshallah with his father. Um, but I think that's one of those things that I'm always a little surprised when people are like, Oh, you know, what do you know about the mom? What do you know about the dad? And I was like, mm, we're, we're not going to go there. Um, that's for him to know. And he can, he can figure out how much he feels comfortable with. That just, that makes me emotional because not because of the stupidity of the people asking it, because I'm sure I would have, I would have asked that, but the thoughtfulness and the mindfulness with which you approach that, it just, it really touches me. Um, you talked a lot about adoption resources and how mm -hmm. it's kind of exploded, you know, with social mm -hmm. media now. Um, so if you could tell anybody who's out there, who's interested in listening or maybe even just researching, mm -hmm. um, you know, what does it entail? Cause I've kind of, um, fallen down that rabbit hole. And I'm really excited to fall down that rabbit mm -hmm. hole just to know, because yeah. who knows what the future will bring one day and inshallah, what opportunities to fulfill the sunnah Allah will give us one day. So we should know what are the top three Muslim adoption resources um, that you love and tell us why. Sure. Um, I think first and foremost, knowing uh, the two organizations that are most commonly used for adoption, uh, because you pretty much, because of U.S. laws, now have to go through a U.S.-based 
adoption agency. So check out New Beginnings and Hopscotch. Um, they both offer services to help facilitate adoption of Moroccan uh, adoptees. Unfortunately, I'm not as aware um, about what's going on right now in Pakistan. Um, the ED Foundation was pretty um, active in adopting out Pakistani um, orphans, but I don't know the latest there. Um, other resources, Islamic resources, again, I love Omar Suleiman's talks about um, the sunnah of adopting and fostering in Islam. Um, and then finally, you know, I always point out to people, just because you're not physically, mentally, emotionally in that space, or maybe your resources don't allow for uh, bringing an orphan into your house, think about how you can support them. Because the reality is, whether or not we like it, there are thousands of children here and overseas that are being raised in institutions without a loving family. Uh, so Islamic Relief is a common one that, you know, you can sponsor an orphan. Uh, again, I'm going to promote... Uh, uh, ominous charity, bloomcharity.org. Uh, they do some fantastic work in the Moroccan orphanages. And so just figuring out how you can support orphans, how you can, um, you know, maybe sponsoring education. Um, for a lot of us that have family back in Pakistan, I know families will tend to take an orphan under their wing and sponsor them through college or private school, you know, just to help them reach adulthood. Um, and then again, with the recent influx of um, Afghan refugees coming in, there's been a lot of discussion about how do you foster uh, refugee children. And so if you want, um, if fostering is something that you and your partner are interested in, something else to look into is how to become a certified foster parent. And for that, your state and county resources are your best bet. It's actually a relatively I would say simple process compared to adoption. Uh, usually it's a series of like seven or eight classes, um, CPR training, going through a home study. Um, but it it's good for us as a Muslim community to increase our numbers in terms of families that are eligible to become foster parents. So I would definitely encourage folks to look into that. I, I love that. I love that you've summed all of that up. And we've had Amina on the show too. So we, we definitely hold Great. her... Um, hold her to a high regards as well and, 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 and enjoy, enjoyed listening to her story. So I'm glad that she was able to help you. And, you know, if you, you're, you've listened to the show before, you know, we're going to go from this really kind of intense topic and we're going to flip it, flip it on its head because that's just what we do here at Momming Wall Muslim. And I'm going to do, um, if we can set the timer for a minute, I'm going to do some rapid oh fire questions oh for gosh. you. It's supposed and to you, be fun. And, 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 oh and honestly, you just kind of have to just say what's on your head right away <laughs> oh, and gosh. if it's something that you don't want um aired we can delete that out later but i'm hoping that's not the case <laughs> but we know we know that you're a pediatrician so you're probably reading all these books and and one of the first books that we love to um what questions we love to ask is what is one of your favorite books oh favorite um oh gosh you guys are you guys are it's getting a hard me. One. <laughs> it's hard. I can tell you what I'm reading right now is how to talk to your children so they will listen. Oh, so, yes. that's a good yeah. favorite. That's yeah. a good one for your library. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's a favorite yet, but it's definitely timely. Keep it on your shelf for sure. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and maybe you're one of these people like I've known Osma since she was a kid, and she's always dreamed of being a doctor. But I want to know like what was one of the first careers you dreamed of before you. Um, 
became a pediatrician. I'm going to be lame. Honestly, I was always like peds bound. It's, it's oh my just gosh. been a passion. I've, See, I'm one of those. We're brown. That's a blessing. We were like, you know, <laughs> I wanted early. to be, you guys are great because I wanted to be a cashier because I thought that was just going to be the most fun job. So I'm like, you guys are goals. Um, so what was the last text you sent and to who? Oh, wow. Um, I think it was to a girlfriend setting up a time to meet for a walk. Oh, I love that. And I hope it's it's raining in the DMV, so you might not be able to get that walk here today. But this is this is the last question. What is something that people are very surprised when they learn about when they learn this about you? Oh, this um, at work all the time uh, when they hear my y'all or my Texan draw come out yeah. that I'm a born and bred Texan. They're like, really? Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. There are there are brown people in Texas. I promise. Yes. <laughs> okay. So so I get that too. Did we did we beat the timer, Uzma, or did we? Oh did we no, make we didn't. It? We went over like thirty oh, seconds. Darn. But I think that we should just set the timer for ninety seconds from now. Yeah, on, exactly. That's generally, how much because time it takes? At, at ninety or like add two because I this is my favorite part of the show because it's this these questions that you don't like I like being asked this look when Uzma and I do this to each other we're like oh I didn't know that about you and I've known you for decades that's so fun (laughs) but thank you so much Alia for joining us here today and sharing your journey and we love 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 hearing about it and you know we are on the DMV so the next time you you're in my area let me know and happy to to meet you in real life nice to meet you guys thank you Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Momming While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.